The Hurling Pod on OTB Sports. I look at the way Kicking celebrate. I look at the way Limerick celebrates a monster, right? To, to go, we actually want to win the next you know, Or were they treating it as just another game, another stepping stone? That's, that's a question I have. Subscribe to the GA Podcast feed on the OTB Sports app now. Now then, you're very welcome back. So it's the final hour of the show. No football show, of course. We're on a six-week hiatus, but we are still very much here until 10 o'clock every evening. Michael McCarthy has popped back into studio. Hello. Hey, Joe. And Arthur O'Dea, after a second consecutive Monday off, has the temerity to show up on a Tuesday and not apologise to the group. Arthur, you're welcome back. <laughs> Fintan O'Toole again this weekend, or what were you up to? No, Phoebe Bridgers. Phoebe Bridgers. Fairview Park. Oh. Class venue. I never really... I didn't kind of comprehend what they were going to do there at all but they kind of erect a marquee and it's absolutely brilliant never been on a it wasn't necessarily for me I wasn't there for me but um, my god what a show so it's an indoor concert marquee big marquee presumably huge huge I was kind of more interested in parts for the the infrastructure of that I was like how did they get this up here (laughs) you were over chatting to the stewards and uh, what was the lead in time here this is fascinating because when I went to see Fintel it was a completely different setup. (laughs) Because I saw everyone leaving Fairview and I wasn't sure what was going on. The Stereophonics are playing there soon, aren't they? Uh, I think you're right. There's some poster with them up there as well, yeah. There's a few gigs, about eight or something, I think. I, I didn't comprehend this at all, but it's a lot of A lot of concerts in Dublin at the moment, it feels like. There was Malahide, then there was the St. Anne's Mini Festival with Duran Duran, amongst others. Uh, Dermot Kennedy did several gigs. And then, of course, Harry Styles in town. Have you seen this? I'm going tomorrow. Oh, yeah. I am. <laughs> Again, not for me, <laughs> but... Just I wouldn't knock Harry Styles. No, no, I think it's going to be a great show. I think he's amazing. Okay. It's going to be a fantastic show. My two-year-old is very, very into um, whatever One Direction's big song was, What Makes You Beautiful or whatever. So I see I see a good bit of young Harry yeah, on YouTube, actually, yeah, uh, singing that song. But I don't know too much about him as a, since then. I sent you one or two. I mean, I, really, yeah. I, I'm not in the target uh, demographic, I suspect, but he's uh, got a bit about him. I mean, he's yeah. not just uh, a former boy band type, yeah. churning out guff. Like no, he's no, it's actually, good stuff. He's got a bit about him. Yeah. It's good stuff. It, it's, it's very, it's like it's really well produced. The sounds from it are amazing. Like yeah. it's really, really, really distinct sort of almost '80s sound. But it's just, uh, I know, it's very good. Do you? Uh, I mean, if there is a thing uh, that, that we can call star quality. Oh, he's got it. Yeah. He has yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Goodness. Although it was a bit grim. I saw him and Olivia Wilde, his uh, partner, I suppose. Uh, they were around this neck of the woods. They were on Set William Street just uh, yesterday. And you go onto Twitter and it's just photographs people have taken of them from five feet away from behind and stuff without their permission. Like just people like, oh my God, Harry Styles is in front of me. This is the uh, curious life. Before we get back on the sport. Sorry. No, before we, I, I, to stay on this topic. Yeah. You mentioned the stereophonics. I have this awful feeling that not that they were like the greatest band of all time either, but I feel like their legacy now is the band who played that big COVID gig. <laughs> Wayne Rooney's favourite band? <laughs> do, you remember, do you remember though that like after, after even Cheltenham had shut down, the Stereophonics oh, yeah. played uh, this massive gig in Cardiff, I think, yeah. in a full arena and it was real defiant. And I hope it wasn't the Manic Street Preachers now. No, it was Stereophonics. <laughs> okay, yeah. good. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's not that they blend into each other, they're just both Welsh. Mm. Uh, yeah, so the Stereophonics played this defiant gig in, in, in Cardiff in front of a full arena, and it was like, you know, we, I don't, it, this wasn't said or anything, but there was very much a feeling of we're not like laying down for this. It was like the same weekend when the Dublin pubs were, you know, yeah. filling in as much as they could, knowing that it was the last days of Rome. Yeah, I do always remember from the ITV coverage at Cheltenham that week, there were uh, montages on one of the days. I don't quite think it was as late as Friday, but late enough on 
too late uh, uh, to beg for much forgiveness. So they had like a slow montage of everybody like coming in in the morning, like with, you know, eager running over the line. And it was like Black Friday. They just opened the doors and yeah. they come in and, and like there were slow motions of people like shaking hands. And <laughs> it was billed by the presenters as like, you know, the best of World War Two wartime spirit. Like we <laughs> shall not be cowed by this thing. Uh, so this is usually the football show between nine and ten. No football show for the next uh, six weeks or so. We're going to chat through some of the stories catching our eye uh, over the next while. Your text, please, to 53106. We'll try and get to a few. Neda Manua was just with us there. It's not every day, I guess, we get to talk directly to a former Premier League footballer. Quite an interesting thing as well to be in your mid-30s and set for life and I only will do what I want to do. Yeah. That's a good philosophy to live by. You try doing it without the money, though. I, it's, I, I, we were kind of talking about this before. Um... I'd love, to, I'd love to know the number. I'd love to know what it is that you're set for life. That it's like, well, that's... Yeah. Because I... I didn't ask him. I assume... Well, no, I suppose you didn't. <laughs> um, I assume you'd want to be... Because in my mind, and I don't know if it's the way people are wired, for me to be so comfortable that I'd be thinking, well, that's it, I don't really need to work again now, I'd want to be well over what I think the right number is. And what's your number? Ten. <laughs> Ten million? Yeah. Like... And no more income. Ten no million in the bank and no income. I can't comprehend how quickly that would go. Yeah, I'm not on a sort of Brewster's millions type thing. I'm not going to be out there. With your lifestyle, about four hundred years, I think it. <laughs> <laughs> Generational wealth. <laughs> uh, no, look, it depends on life. So this is the thing when all these sports stars talk about being set for life. It's are you, are you living frugally or are you maintaining an extravagant lifestyle? I suppose. The other aspect of this is akin to Robbie Fowler and Stephen Hanneman buying all these houses yeah. and then having a, a rental income that keeps pace with inflation. Was that something they did or was that a Soccer AM skit? Oh, that's true. No, it was, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think Fowler had more, more homes than the Queen of England, doesn't it? Yeah. Something like that, more properties. There was the, you, we all live in a Robbie Fowler. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he, was, he did a road show with us um, last year and I asked him about it. You know, like, yeah. you know, I was going to say to him, you're like much mocked and lots of scouse stereotypes thrown at you. And actually, you were incredibly shrewd. And he was saying, yeah, I got really good advice early on and I wanted to provide for everyone around me. And so I was sensible with my money. I knew the value of a pound from where I came from. Mm. So it's very true. Yeah. Wonder he loses hunger for it. You know, and I don't mean, I don't think like, Robbie Fowler seemed like I was a very genuine kind of footballer. And I wonder, does that hurt you then? Because I think he talked about this a little bit before when he left Liverpool. I don't think he wanted to leave Liverpool and then suddenly he's at Leeds and then he's at Man City and he was a shadow of him former yeah. self. And then when Liverpool randomly signed him back again in like 2006 or whatever it was yeah. with Rafa, he was like good again. Like he was past his best, but he was kind of like back to a standard. And I wonder is like, do you know what? It's like I have had this amazing career with the club I've always loved. Yeah. I've earned more money than I'll ever need. I've got investments wherever. It's like, do you put in that? 100% after the 99 is done yeah. in training to be the best you can be when you're with Leeds or City? It's a very interesting question because I know, well, we got into this with him and he was pretty open about it and certainly an injury screwed him at yeah. Liverpool the first time around for sure. But also, and it was, it was quite a sad thing, he said his late father, one of the things he always remembers is his dad said to him at one stage, look, you had a really good career. But if you hadn't liked to pint so much, it would have been better. God. And he said that really landed with him because he obviously suspected there was a grain of truth 
yeah. in there as well. But it, like you did have a very good career because I remember in the chat, he was brilliant, actually, incredibly likable fella and, and very open about these things. But I remember saying, I always thought by the time you moved to Leeds, you were like way past your best. Yeah, like this but he was, was what, 26? He's about 25, 26. Yeah. No way. Yeah. yeah. He must have been, yeah. And the injury didn't help him. And he said, look, the injury didn't help me. He didn't want to leave Liverpool, but Jared Houllier didn't have him in the first team and he felt he had to go and didn't want to outweigh Houllier at that stage. It's very funny because I, I was watching, you know, I had a lot of time to kill before the concert. Um, 2002, three Premier League years and it was across that. I think it might have been in that January if those windows were there that he left Leeds for City. Yeah. So again, it's like, God, I, I, watching that, I was like, oh yeah, there's Robbie Fowler. It's the last few years of his career, but yeah. he obviously wasn't nowhere near. But to be fair to him, like, and, and God, he scored an awful lot of goals. But it, like his contemporaries, uh, certainly in England, like it was a, a serious generation of strikers that they had. Yeah. Like, you, it's, like it's, and him in another time gets, I think he ended up with fairly, it was early double figures caps, like 27 or something like that's in my mind for whatever reason. Yeah. So like the likes of Shear, the likes of sharing him, someone like that. Like, but sure, you were talking on the show last week about some match that was on with like the rest of the world versus the football oh, league or something. You were, and yeah. I think Nathan was going through it and he was like, and it was like, look at the forward line. It's like Shearer and Cole. I was like, imagine they were from the same country. <laughs> they could have played together at international level. Oh wait, they did. And England never seemed to use all. Like they had this unbelievable array of strikers at the same time and none of them seemed to play except for Shearer. Shearer and Sheridan well. really. Yeah. Then Owen came in the scene. Like Ian Wright is another we could be sitting here saying no he was very unlucky akin to Fowler. Yeah. Les Ferdinand quite a few. Les Ferdinand. Mm. Ian Wright was top scorer in the uh, in the league championship the last league championship I think that Leeds won and then wasn't picked for the Euro 92 squad. Oh, wow. Like Alan Smith came on for Gary Lineker it was just uh, England it's just weird sometimes. Uh, speaking of talent to move off that for a moment it was quite striking that Neda Manua spoke in such glowing terms about Stephen Ireland. Yeah. Still makes a mockery of people at Astro. I suspect that's a high-level Astro game that he's playing yeah. in. And, but, <laughs> you know, what jogged my memory of that is you said all of Fowler's contemporaries would talk about him in glowing terms. Stephen Ireland's absolutely in that bracket. As I was saying to Anua, it does feel like one of the great wasted talents. Certainly, like, from an Irish perspective, we can't afford to have a player as good as Stephen Ireland was and not to have had him fulfill his potential but yeah. still really good and still doing a job and obviously uh, you know age and fitness catches up but uh, it is a pity what happened to his uh, career well his Ireland career I mean was a non-starter we remembered him he saved us in San Marino yeah. and he beat Wales and that was it like what did he have six or, six or eight caps six sure caps one, four goals six caps four goals that's unbelievable <laughs> yeah. that's rich, and yeah. you know like but that's like it's, that's been that was a 10 year story that was nothing to do with him actually playing football yeah. you know but his club career like what he did at Man City he talks about it himself and I always feel like that some of the this person screwed me or I had this look here or they yeah. promised me this and this and that. It couldn't all be strictly true. I do think it's his truth. I don't think he's like <laughs> making up stories. But I do think that there must be more to it that Stephen Ireland probably isn't even fully aware of. Yeah. That like Villa didn't sign him and then make him player of the year so that they could sell him out of some sort of weird spite or something like that. There was more to it. But he just did, he was just on the cusp of it on two separate occasions, if you think of it. You know, like he was on the cusp of obviously the City revolution mm. and he was there and he was good enough at that time. He was Man City player, player of the, of the year. year. Yeah, and you know, it went against them. There was an injury at the wrong time. It was a clash with a manager at the wrong time, but then had that chance at Villa, yeah. you know, and was player of the year at Villa. 
and it wasn't as good a Villa team. It didn't have as much potential. Yeah. But it wasn't the Villa of five years later. It was a. It was you know. It was Martin O'Neill. It was, it, you know, there was top six. There were you know. This was a good side, mm. and that fell away as well. You know, at the wrong time. That was an injury and not being able to get back into the team. And and again falling out you know so yeah. fallings out always do have two sides but it's just such a pity because he'll just look back and you'd imagine he look back in his career with such regret like you know but at the same time by any standards had a great career yeah you know there's a good line in that Anua interview as well talking about Ireland where it's like I think I think you might have suggested to I, I don't know what it was about you know Mancini why he couldn't you know kept him why no one kind of pushed the matter and like no this guy's really good and I think he kind of says, ah, at that level, everyone's replaceable. Yeah. And it's, that, it's, it's very, very interesting. I suppose, I, I think it's an acutely Irish perspective on that. I don't think anyone in City or Villa or anything else is going there's, there's plenty of Stephen Ireland's. And you know what? It was unfortunate in that it was Trapattoni in after Staunton who wouldn't be, maybe like the current manager, would you suspect, all that interested in going over to Stephen yeah. Ireland, sitting down. Let's have a conversation in my first language, your first language, and let's let, like let me lay out a plan whereby I'll find out whatever issues you may have had in camp. There were always rumors about how well yeah. he was or wasn't treated. We'll address those first of all, and then regardless of how your club career is going, I want you to see Ireland as your bosom. That you know you come in close, and we'll always look after you. And you come and you be our main man for the next ten years, and you keep your fitness up for Ireland, and you can be, you can be anything for this country. You know, you suspect a Stephen Kenny type. Could have done yeah. that. Trap Tony was not going to do that. There was always so much pride <laughs> in Irish in, in Irish managers because I the first press conference I ever went to, Joe, as uh, working, I asked Trap Tony about Stephen Ireland. He was it was like two thousand and seven. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Ireland wasn't gone very long at that stage, and there was some kind of like, you know, answer about how you know I'll, I'll get to that at the, the start of the next season or whatever it is, or he's injured at the moment, and it never felt like Trap Tony was going to roll out the red carpet and put his arm around the yeah. player and manager because. Pride. It's like I'm not doing that for one player. He can. He knows where we are. I'm. I'm an international manager. He's just a player. But then, Trapattoni was replaced by Martin O'Neill, which was a great appointment in so many ways. But in terms of trying to <laughs> make the most out of a situation like that, Martin O'Neill was never getting on a. You know, on a. He he might have met him, but it would have been a very different conversation. It wasn't going to be that arm around the shoulder. Mm. You know, we're all here for you, buddy. And I can preemptively, uh, you know, address someone who is going to text in and say, well, it shouldn't be up to a manager. A player should be desperate to play for his country, etc. I'm not even saying right or wrong. I'm just saying in this situation, if that's what we needed to get Stephen Ireland back, maybe that's not what we should do. But if it's what we wanted to do, then that's how you had to do it. Not all people are the same. Human nature is what it is. He needed, I think, a special relationship with the manager and he could have been such a great player. I mean, it's a pity. So uh, on, uh, we were talking to Ned and on, on, you know, he's written a sports book. Where are we in our uh, reading at the moment? Who's reading sports books still? And what kind? I'm curious. I know you're reading at the moment. I'm reading the, the Mickelson one, the Alan Shipnock book. Yeah, same. Which is, I, 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 it's an interest. I, you'll be coming from it from a vastly different point of view from me. I knew virtually nothing. My big kind of take, I two big take was that I didn't know beforehand quite how good and highly regarded Phil Mickelson was. Yeah. And by the same token, didn't quite realise either that oh my God, how good Tiger Woods actually was. So the style of the Shipnut book is, I've talked to pretty much hundreds of people around Nicholson. I've done unbelievable level of research. I've got FBI documents which to document his gambling, you name it. I've, uh, I've addressed the rumours that 
uh, Phil had a baby with, you know, the, yeah, yeah. The, the woman who worked at the first hole at one of the courses as a regular stop on the PGA Tour. I've, I've dug into all of that stuff. Um, probably, you know, put things in it that I don't know. Could you get past the lawyers over here or the, the rules of defamation what over here? What do you mean here? she worked at the first hole? Like, on the, like uh, you know, I suppose you'd hand out the the cards to the starters. Oh, okay, like right, yeah, so very much got on the first tee. First tee, more yeah, than first yeah, hole. So, yeah. She's not hanging around with the flag. I was just what she was doing. <laughs> Breaks left to right, Phil. It's like, who have we got? Have we got someone else for the second hole because this is a very important job. <laughs> yeah, you need no, to of them. It's more at the start of the round as okay, opposed sorry. to somewhere vaguely on the first hole. She'll be up there somewhere. Just yeah, hit your ball, you'll find yeah, her. Yeah. No. <laughs> Uh, and not like and you know there's pages devoted to this rumor and like the consternation it caused the Mickelsons to the, the yeah. you know very interesting and they paid money to find out who had started the rumor etc and it's all teased out so it's that kind of a style book it's warts and all but yeah. there's also lots of good stuff in the and all it's not just warts uh, so it's a full 3D picture full technicolor here is what hundreds of people say about this kind of iconic golfer that's the if you're not familiar with the book that's kind of what it is I'm all for reading those books now, unauthorized, the unvarnished mm -hmm. uh, truth. I'd have to say, I, I, I'm probably not alone in this, uh, the whole innocent until proven guilty maxim, when it comes to sports autobiographies now, I'm, I'm of the, it's terrible until I hear otherwise maxim. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And, and another thing with that ship, no, again, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like in certain regards, it's an excellent analysis of his style and his actual play and yeah, yeah. like and the only thing that it drew my mind back to which I read recently enough after he died uh, your Gideon Haig the I might be pronouncing that wrong but the Australian journalist wrote a fantastic book about Shane Warren that was in a similar similar vein Warren's probably an all around more lovable figure but in terms of that, this, the writing on style and stuff and that is amazing and I know we can get to it. We, we we just don't, and there's interesting reasons for it. But we just don't do that here in Ireland as, as much. Like, what, there's no. What are the reasons? Well, I mean, there's the reasons are I suppose you can't. The same reasons that there's a delayed release of that book here, or that there isn't the same release of that book here. That you can't you read it in via Amazon for a particular reason that you can't. You're not going to get the same stuff here. No, but we should lay that out. There's no harm in saying that the the libel laws in this country are an absolute joke and have been for many many years. Defamation Act is miles out of date. People come to Ireland to sue for defamation because it's the easiest place to get it. Like you know, we don't need to dance around that. Mm. I think that's it's it's an absolute. We've obviously been dealing with it for, for like you know, working in media, people have it in news, I think, and, you know, in current affairs have it a lot worse off than we do in sport as they need to deal with it and they need to dance around a lot of nonsense because you kind of can't say anything. We're the home of a good corporate tax rate and defamation laws. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they're worse in the UK, which are world famous, you know, and we're worse. So that's one of the reasons that we can't get too many warts and alls um, because you might have the most well-researched book in the world that has all of your facts, but maybe there might be one little word in there that can't quite be proven, though is true, mm. and there you go, is, open season. Is the other reason just the size of the market as well? If you do a book on an Irish sports person, how many copies are you going to sell? Is that worth the... Yeah, I suppose that's, that's an interesting time. part, but like for all the interest in this country that there is in, say, Roy Keane, yeah. okay, and there's been... Realistically, there's two books. I'm not correct. He obviously has his two books and they're one perspective on it. Yeah. And they're, I forget the fellow's name, the, who wrote one from the 42 about his kind of late, his Irish years almost pre-Nottingham Forest. And there's nothing after that. There's nothing like, it, it, and that can be spread right across the whole 
spectrum. There's no mm. books about any, even even the international sports people. There's no kind of, we don't, well, to be frank, the perfectly, the problem here is that we don't really have any sort of industry whatsoever of writing about culture compared to like an American situation. And I, that's not even libel laws. That's just even cultural criticism, anything like that. We just don't do that here. Not really. And certainly not about pop culture. You can forget about it. Like it just, it does not happen. Yeah. You're asking what we're reading. And at the moment I'm reading like a breakdown of The Sopranos and its cultural phenomenon by like Alan Septonwall that yeah. is like as in-depth as you could possibly imagine. And it's not going to be for everybody. Yeah. But if you want information on that show, the, it, and it's kind of got everything. It's got the background to the show and it's like what's outside the real life. And also even if you just want to dig deep into the actual storyline of it and what it means and what's actually going on there, you couldn't possibly get more. And it's just like, I, I think you're right. I think with sport and with culture is that we don't treat it no. with that kind of level of, is nerdiness even, the, nerdiness even the right word? Like, I mean, we don't dig into it, I guess, just and it for what it is. We do it to a huge degree, to, and, and not even us. It's done for us in a large degree with stuff like Joyce, with Heaney, with all different Shaw, Yates, everything else, that there's a serious treatment of all these literary figures. But beyond that, I mean, once it cuts off, then it's nearly a point in there, which is why a book like, to come back to it, to Fintan O'Toole's book, which is made up of a lot of that, to be honest, like a lot of different culture, the stuff that is, granted, he's a special case and he dealt with it extremely well an awful lot of things, but there's stuff in there that's like, my God, this is fascinating. But we just don't do it. We don't, we don't produce anything like that. We don't... I don't know why. I, don't, I, I really don't know because that's nothing to do with libel laws or anything else. Yeah. I Probably you're probably into the, the nub of it there with the, to do with the market. I think it's market forces. It's just... Yeah. It's just pretty grim. Yeah. yeah, there's been some good Irish sports books though. I, I, like, I think you're right, Joe. I think there's a there's a sense of it's never been easier to probably get a book released, but it's completely watered down what it is to have a sports book or a sports autobiography or so on. And, and I think you almost wait for the word of mouth. I think when they're kind of sent in, or you see them on the shelves, or you see the promotion, you're like. I'm going to hear, need to hear from somebody who I really respect who says, this is one of the best books I've read in a long time. And, and it's like, and that's it then. And it's like, when I think of like sports books I read, it's like, for whatever reason, for 10, 15 years now, the Agassiz book has passed me by. I've just never got around to reading it. And it's like, I know what I'm getting with that yeah. because it's so famous and it's so critically acclaimed and yeah. it's so, so much word of mouth about it. It's like, I'm a lot safer sitting down with that than with a, whatever you know, Ashley Cole autobiography I'm, I'm, I'm going to spot. Now, that's yeah. all, Ashley Cole's always, always the one that you throw out as the cliche even, like, as I think it might have been notoriously bad, or one of Wayne Rooney's six autobiographies. Like they're they're, they're all, all a bit like that. They're all rubbish, like, really. Like, yeah. The vast, 99% of them really are. And I suppose what differentiates Agassiz to a lot of the sports books we get by people involved in teams is Agassiz doesn't owe privacy to any dressing room. Yeah. So he can... Absolutely, warts like there's there's there are just amazing, mind blowing scenes in Agassiz. Like I'm so jealous you get to read it for the first time. Like when you realise that he was wearing a wig all those years, and like you know he documents the French Open final where he had run out of the. This is not the official term, but the glue to stick his wig to his head on the morning of the final, and so he had to like cobble together. I mean, it's like. I don't know, it's like Ross Geller trying to get his leather pants off. He gets some kind of a pace together. You know, <laughs> he, he, he just gets something and manages to like, and bits of tape and sticks the 
hair to his head, but spends the entirety of the French Open final worried every time he sprinted for a drop shot, is my wig going to blow into the air? And loses the French Open final. So, like, could you tell that story about a teammate? You couldn't. But when it's you and you're happy to bear all, you can bear all. Whereas, like, take the Keith Earls book, which I would still recommend, absolutely recommend. And we had a great conversation. And someone just tweeted me yesterday, both of us, in fact, in the tweet and said, on the back of your interview, I'm I'm reading your book and I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. So you'd say Earls and Tommy Conlon, absolutely extraordinary on Earls, the person. On Munster on what went wrong for Ireland at the 2019 World Cup where he he feels he owes a huge debt to Joe Schmidt clearly and and feels he owes a certain privacy to his teammates it's not there's not the same level of transparency there's not the same detail and so that that almost encapsulates it perfectly when he's on him man is he giving you everything and more besides when he's on the dressing room and the sanctity of that dressing room what went wrong for Munster over those years what went wrong for Ireland what went right you know he's understandably more cautious and and did did the best he could I think but that that point that principle applies to all of the books Joe Schmidt's book all these books like, yeah. you know peop, here's what people say to each other when a book like that comes out because every Christmas we get the four or five who's got a book this year it's so and so the first thing you ask anyone who's read it is is he saying anything and yeah. more often than not the answer is nah no. it is kind of understandable as well I mean the loyalty Very who you owe to, but it, it, it's kind of the cod that it's that it's not yeah it, I suppose you, you do come to expect it but at the same time it's not it's, it's ne- that's never confronted it's arguably you being more admirable as a person by saying I'm not going to tell those stories I'm going to respect yeah. the dressing room but you're shortchanging the reader who's handing over their 1899 but then honestly there is a real attitude of excuse me I'm trying to turn that off and it's not going off there is a real attitude you suspect of look they're just buying it for dad for Christmas he's not going to read it just get the 1899 <laughs> for Christmas like it doesn't matter it's a victimless crime that's the attitude uh, yeah maybe And like, I hope uh, that's not true because I do think I do think there can be something very cathartic about writing a book and it can be a line almost in the sand of a certain part of your life that you know I, I feel when reading the good ones that people have got something out of this, out of telling their story. And it doesn't always have to be the big personal reveal and so on. Like two books that jump out for me actually that I, I liked and they're a good while ago now were Anthony Daly and Michael Dignan's, two hurling books, right? And I wonder about, I don't think there was any mad stories that were never told before or anything like that was like insanely personal or, or like... A, a, the big headline. The, 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 the big not, reveal on the Late Late Show question. Yeah, no, no I, well, yeah, big reveal, sure. But there was, there was a hook, especially to Michael's, you know, sadly. But, oh, you know, there was. Yeah, yeah. But I don't even mean that. I'm, I, I, I suppose what I'm saying is um, that, you know, they, it didn't feel like they weren't telling me anything about the Offaly dressing rooms or the Clare dressing rooms. And I wonder, is that because they were written 10 years after they'd stopped playing? Yeah. And is that something as well? Is that like, what the hell is Keith Earl supposed to say? He's still in the Munster <laughs> dressing room yeah. and in the Ireland dressing room. And that's not to say he shouldn't write the book, but... You know when you're still playing because it was probably the, it, like I mean the reaction that he got and the, the the place he was in his life it was the right time to tell that story mm. but the second half it couldn't be told the rugby half of it can't be told really not, yet not, not you know properly whereas for Dalo and for Dygden mm. why not like you they, know what I mean would you recommend both of them oh, they're, they're both very good books it depends what you want like they just uh, they think of the two of those people they're kind of orators and they're yeah. they're very you know they're storytellers and. You know, I don't know. They're both. There's both. There's there's good stories in them, and they're both very very good. But actually, at the same time, you're just spending, 
you know, four or five days mm. in their company mm. is kind of the best thing I could say about yeah. those books, you know? Sold. I mean, I'd yeah. take that for sure. But with the same token, who wants to, ha- like, the stomach for a controversial book? I'd be damned, I wouldn't go near that. If, if that was like, the, the thought of it, like, like who who wants to be Roy Keane? Who wants to have a lay it all? Do you know what I mean? For a second, I thought you meant, the I thought you meant as a reader for a second. No, like, no, no, no. But like from a, that give point Give me a of boring view. book any day, says Arthur. You, <laughs> like, oh, oh, totally. As a Why on earth would you person? want to like, oh, just light a match there, burn the whole house down and just let's see what comes out of it. Like, yeah. I just, yeah. I, but I, I, I do. I always remember a review of Roy Keane's first book, The Eamon Dunphy one. I think, I think it was by Henry Winter and he was like, this book is written in venom, not ink. You yeah. Know? <laughs> Do you know what's you know a, a good book a couple of years ago, actually? Davy Fitzgerald book that he wrote. The, I think he might have too, but it wasn't really about his playing career. So. It was about kind of his management career and stuff. And it was actually good, but it was, <laughs> it was kind of the Davy book you'd expect in a lot of ways. There was a lot of sort of like, and now to liars. <laughs> <laughs> But there was an awful lot of kind of look. I look at it. And I I understand that I did wrong, but also I have to say they screwed me a little bit. But do you know what? At least he was saying it. Absolutely. And I did. I I felt like all of the stories in that, and it was his kind of days as Waterford manager, Clare manager, and I, I I think it I think it brings in some of the Wexford time as well. It's only a couple of years old, and yeah, it was again not to kind of I don't know why I'm bringing them all to hurling books. I honestly do read things that aren't hurling. No, books. I know because like Keith Wood would always say, I can't write a book because I can't tell the truth. <laughs> You know, I can't like I yeah. can't I can't say what I really thought of him or thought yeah. you know, all that stuff. Like it's you short and change. It's crazy, like it's it's complete. Like just you're doing away with any sort of sort of social decorum whatsoever. It's just yeah, it must be an odd thing actually. Sorry, I'm going to go to an ad break here now, but just thinking. So what flashed through my mind there as you were talking were four different ideas. One, I was like, could you imagine like one of us wrote the off the ball book? Yeah, and like. <laughs> destroyed people left, right and centre and, and everything. You, you know, you just wouldn't feel good as a person. That Arthur fella used to take that. nights off to go to book festivals. Yeah. Obsessed with Fintan O'Toole, that kid. Um, but the other thing is, you would feel, it must be an odd dynamic whereby if you now go into professional sport, you have to think to yourself, actually every conversation, say you're Roy Keane in life right now, every conversation I have with someone is liable to turn up on the record. Yeah. I almost would need to say with everyone, by the way, this training ground row we're having is off the record and then tear into them. <laughs> and, and that must be an, an odd dynamic in a dressing room now where sports people are like, he'll probably write a book, actually. I can't yeah. have been this. That's a, an, an odd quality. Imagine you knew that I was writing a book in five years about my time at Off The Ball. <laughs> it would change the conversations we'd yeah. be having. That's a good point. Well, now that, like, that must be a sort of completely exacerbated by the fact of all these documentaries that are being made like it's the real time type thing yeah like all or nothing and all these types oh, of things yeah, yeah. like how does that even work and can you switch them off for a second i can't be seen saying this do you think roy Keane does think to himself can you all just stop telling stories about me uh, no because no. I, I, roy Keane thrives in it i think and is so? is he's written two books himself <laughs> you know <laughs> and but isn't afraid to say things about other people and more so than anybody else and look it's a it's a beautiful honesty that we want in the world but he has to know it's coming back yeah you know can I just make a, la- a <laughs> last point go on yeah ah do you know what I'm alright <laughs> that's the spirit of it that's the kind of Keith Wood integrity I like is this worth putting out no 
we'll move on. Uh, this is usually the football show. So myself and Mick and Arthur just picking. Well, we initially started off just picking through a few stories of the uh, day. Uh, your text to 53106 or you can tweet us as well. A uh, couple of pieces of news which we'll address after the uh, break. So I'm going to chat to the lads about the fact that really we should be watching a World Cup right now, but it's on in Qatar. So how are they feeling about a Qatar World Cup? Brooks Kepka is the latest to defect over to live golf. So it's getting serious now, I suppose. They've lost Kepka, DeChambeau, Patrick Reed, a lot of their big stars, major winners in their 20s. And we'll take a temperature check as well on how has the GEA summer been for you? Back in one sec. Now you're welcome back. Joe Malloy here, Mick McCarthy here, Arthur O'D here. We are uh, Team OTB. We're essentially having a production meeting on the air here. This is kind of what's happening. So there's no football show. We're on with you until 10. We've had a busy show thus far. Big, long feature interviews. We had Nedim Anua, who played for Manchester City and QPR, talking about his new book. We had Paul Mannion, a former, even though it's still odd to say that, former Dublin GAA footballer, age 29, out in Boston at the moment playing his football and loving life and no plans to return. So a few things, given those big feature long interviews we didn't have time to touch on across the show, include Brooks Kepka is the latest big name to move across to Live Golf. This is very much reported today. So he joins all the big names that we know about already. I mean, he's a big one. He was always going to do this. One, he's power, uh, I was going to say he's power hungry, money hungry. He's money hungry for sure. And two, he's rubbish on the PGA Tour anyway. He doesn't uh, go to the easier golf. He doesn't win PGA Tour events. He just wins majors. So I can see how he wasn't that tied to the PGA Tour. His brother Chase plays on the live. Oh, Chase Kupka. If there's not a team Chase, then these team guys Chase. just aren't trying. Sorry, Brooks and Chase Kupka's parents named their two sons Chase and Brooks. Yes. I just don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It is interesting. So uh, once again, we'll have Bri- Br- uh, Brooks Kepka and Bryson DeChambeau. Well, that's the big thing, isn't it? Because... When, like, is it 12 months ago? Like, when was the Ryder Cup and when was all the crack before that? It was, it was probably about 18 months ago. No, it was two, two ago. years ago. It was eight months ago. Okay, so when, when, was the, when was the crack with the interview and stuff like that? When they hugged and everything? No, before that, before, before the Ryder Cup. It was at one of the majors. Yeah, when, maybe last summer, yeah. Yeah, so when DeChambeau was in the background and Kupka couldn't keep his train of thought because he hated him so much. Honestly, uh, honestly I'm, not, I'm not even just saying this. He's kind of like... <laughs> I've seen that from you a lot. <laughs> I bet any number that you do that, you go like. <sighs> I saw, I, I saw Kevka do that. I thought I've seen that before. But anyway, go on. You're I mean, gonna you're trying to inspire a coughing fit here for me, <laughs> but uh, I'll try and hold it together. That, <laughs> Excuse yeah, me. That pantomime's been going for the last eight. Okay, months. so when that was happening, at its height, yeah, you couldn't wait to see. Shambo and Kupka, last round of a major, drawn yeah. together in the final group as well. Everybody was waiting for it. There was a sense there that as good as they might be or as not good as they might be, they might not be Tiger and Phil, yeah. but they're what golf needs post-Tiger and Phil is a competition between two people who genuinely don't like each other and are good enough to go out and win majors. It was yeah. a big deal. It was yeah. what we were talking about. It was the, the next big thing it was, very, it, was, it was the Kobe Bryant yeah, after yeah. Michael Jordan and, right and quite rare in golf for that open hatred as well exactly and it was a year ago yeah and now they're both gone and playing on a rebel tour and to be honest not playing very well either so maybe maybe we were like the fact that we might have been wrong about you know their longevity and how well they would play actually is irrelevant because what we're saying is that's how big they were we were talking about a new era in golf because of how big these two were yeah and now they're gone. 
for people wondering, well, how does this work with majors? I suppose in the case of Kepka and Deschambeau, and, uh, you know, this again goes to the heart of the point that these are big names. Both of them <coughs> have won majors quite recently. So that gives them a five year exemption in all the majors. So they're banking on the official world ranking points situation because at the moment the live golf, you know, you could win a tournament, you don't get any ranking points. So steadily your ranking goes down, you don't get into the majors. They're banking on this whole thing being sorted out in the next couple of years. In the meantime, they can play the majors even if Graham McDowell can't. By the way, Graham McDowell on Twitter over the weekend. Oh. Bad. Don't be responding. Yeah. Don't be responding to people. At one stage, she referred to the smear campaign against him. Yeah. yeah. The smear. When this smear campaign is over, that was one of the most extraordinary words that I've heard a man use since last week when he used the word execute uh, to describe uh, what Liv Golf were Why doing. Can't Amnesty International just quit with their smear campaign? <laughs> I it's unbelievable. This is, this it's is all going to crazy. But this, his like, legacy is in big trouble, by the way, at the moment. Yeah, this thing. He ends up as the CEO of Live Golf or something like that, which is like he seems to be angling for some sort no, of official post golf position. I wouldn't say that's going very well for Greg Norman right now, <laughs> would you? <laughs> legacy is secure. Well, you know, this, his wallet's full. They're going to. This will. Do you get the feeling this is just going to amalgamate? It'll. It'll in some way work. This isn't going to like. What's the tipping point? To know. Because, like, it's, you we're, could argue... We're, we're getting there. Yeah, like, there's not many more... Well, there's, I mean, there, look, there are plenty more... Uh, the world's best players are still very much in the PGA Tour, but when you consider that three months ago the Live Golf thing looked dead, and now it has all of these players, and it's still throwing huge money at all of these players, they're going to tempt a few more big names. That'll be pretty close to a tipping point. Alan Shipnuck, who we mentioned, writer of the Phil book, I heard him talking about this and I thought he used a, great, you know, a good word for it. He was like, he, throughout the Phil book, he talks about the juice, you know, like yeah. Phil loves juice, that kind of, whatever that is, that kind of energy. He said, the live golf event now might not have all of the best players, sure, but it has in these characters like Kepka and DeChambeau and Phil and Patrick Reed and even to a lesser extent, Westwood, Poulter, these kind of guys. It has enough juice to kind of entice you. Versus, you're like, already the Irish Open coming very soon versus if the, this Live Golf circus with it, these 48 players rolled into town, the Live Golf field destroys the Irish Open field for juice, for intrigue, for yeah. bums on seats. Like, I know we all really want to go and see who's playing the Irish Open. I can't even... I mean, aside from Shane Larry and Seamus Barron, a few big names. A lot of... Yeah, Tyrrell Hatton. Even he's like a big enough star, but like, the fact that I can't think of an... Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, say one was on in Trump Dune Beg. At the same time. And one was on an hour down the road. Okay, yeah, no. Uh, can I just say, though, that's... I think there's a difference between kind of like drawing interest and drawing fans as opposed to kind of like week in, week out ratings and watchings because... The juice is one thing, and the characters are like is one thing. But what is don't clip that? What is uh, what is it all for? And I think people will get a bit bored of just watching the characters play exhibition golf. Maybe. Like if the competition isn't there, and I think if you were watching the U.S. Open or even the bloody Canadian Open uh, last week with Rory, you know, no. But seriously though, is there not it felt like it mattered? And yeah. uh, look, it's only we've only had one tournament, so there's time for this to happen but they're not going to do it through gimmicks and whatever else they're doing oh, I that. what I actually think is that Live Golf will normalise into a tour of itself and just be the same maybe it'll be 54 but everything else will be the same well there's definitely a sense the PGA Tour might have to as Arthur said realise oh my god 
this is actually getting in hand, we could be in big trouble here. Before these guys crush us, let's amalgamate yeah. and have some kind of compromise whereby, okay, Brooks and Bryson, they play six of your eight events, but they have to play seven PGA Tour events so we don't lose them totally just because we can't lose all our They won't years. win. They won't beat the money from Saudi Arabia. The PGA Tour won't win it. It doesn't mean they won't over... Like, so Saudi Arabia are just not going to stop. They, they're putting, I think, a, like a huge offer on the table now for... Joshua Usyk too, uh, that was in the papers today, I think 76 million or something like yeah. that on the table for that fight. You know, Newcastle's obviously happening, so on, right? So the PGA Tour's not gonna be able to compete with that. The situation in the world might change though. You know, and that could happen pretty quickly. It's obviously happened with, look at what's happened at Chelsea and, and yeah. so on, you know? So like, at the moment, Western governments are happy to kind of like be buzz and buddies with Saudi Arabia while kind of like, you know, other people in the government can shake their fists at sports washing, but not really do anything about it because ultimately the first part of my sentence was far more important than yeah. the second part. That might not last forever. Things like that do change. And once they do, these things will fall away. Well, as long as we need oil, it's not going to change anytime soon, certainly from a, a golf perspective anyway. And I do take your point about the uh, you know, in isolation, Charles Schwarzschild winning a live golf event, what does it mean? As opposed to Rory winning a Canadian Open. But in a way, like, who won the FedEx last year? What is a PGA Tour win except just a win in isolation against whoever turned up that given week? Like, I think pretty quickly, yeah. the live golf thing, yeah, look, it, there's a history to it and there's a... Like, history, there was, that's all. There was genuinely, like, Rory McIlroy, it was ironic because he made such a big deal of it because of Greg Norman, but him winning that... 21st event, you know, shows that, you know, he's on a list that's been there since the 1950s or in, 60s or whatever, in, that of how many... Oh yeah. To but counter that. In 10 years, Live Golf will have a history. And like when Jack and Arnold started the PGA Tour in the 60s, it had no history. And then yeah. the Premier League. Like if anything has so dramatically overwritten, it's the history of what came before. Oh yeah. Yeah, but it hasn't though, because when, Liver when Manchester United won their 19th title, but that was just it to was do with local. That was that was a one-on-one -on -one head head. That's like it you wasn't. could still. No, have nobody said that. Nobody said that Blackburn are second and the or that Arsenal are second. No, the, but I'm saying that's just because that because the rivalry preceded it, and yeah. that's so ingrained in, in the part of being a fan of that team. But like, I don't think so. I think that I don't think I think that there's a there's a load of things that people actually. <laughs> I don't know if we want to get into this, but 1992 is the birth of football. It's just it, it's just it's a natural starting point for a modern era that comes from both that the Champions League, the back pass rule, TV. There's a load of different things that come into it being 92, and it's not just the Premier League. I don't think that history was rewritten by the Premier League at all. I still think that you know we talk about how many titles somebody won, how many. There, there's no real line in the I sand. I think you're there. both right. I think I agree with everything you just said. But in, to Arthur's point, there is something in like how quickly a Premier League brand became its own oh, thing brand with, wise, with yeah. a kind of rich sense of history. In 10 years time, we'll be doing the Live Golf Hall of Fame inductees. You know, it's just exactly. And that was the last quickly. The last few years with the Premier League, all of a sudden these Premier League Hall of Fame, oh, all this yeah, type of thing. Yeah, yeah. It just consumed what came before. Anyway, we talked about it so much. I don't know what's going to happen, but Brooks Kepka has jumped today and there's constant rumours of more names to be announced in advance of just the second ever. Yeah live golf event in Portland the same week as the Irish Open like this is the reality of golf now you're trying to tempt these guys over and they're like well I'm yeah. either playing Portland or I'm putting my feet yeah. up cause and there's a PGA Tour event or whatever as well yeah. you know and it's like uh, cer know. certainly Paul McGinley on the Sky coverage during the week uh, struck a very concerned tone that this is very bad for golf and this is going to end badly potentially the, for the, the PGA Tour it's the breakup of darts all over again I don't know how many years first it was my parents said it was darts and now it's golf
the world <laughs> Jesus. cup the world cup should be on right now how are we feeling about Qatar increasingly not so much um we'll go back into sports washing yeah not so much the human rights aspect if we can very 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 sensitively park that for a yeah. moment yeah, because i think well, i think can't, but. the bottom line is this world cup is a when you incorporate it in its fullness the world cup is a, a disgrace for all of the reasons we yes. talked about numerous times on the show but i suppose I'm, I'm curious for your thoughts the the concept of a world cup in december because you would think you know if it is a, a global game then every 20 25 years we're going to have to have a world cup in december in this part of the world mm-hmm. and it, it may well raise human rights issues each and every time uh, these are largely Islamic states and uh, not bastions of democracy so we could be having this kind of a discussion around uh, a lot of World Cups in this part of the world though you would hope the the rights of the workers I mean what's happened here is just abhorrent but the idea of a World Cup in December are you looking forward to it have you given it much thought where are you in that one it should be on right now yeah, the first time it happens is going to be the weirdest. And I think it massively devalues the World Cup for... Let's get back to in a minute, actually. I think it's actually more important about how we feel sitting here in June when we're robbed of a World Cup, having been two years ago robbed of the Euros. And, you know, I think that's important, as in the, the beats of our sporting calendar, I think, massively matter. But actually, the World Cup itself is massively devalued by this. It's massively devalued by it not being in a place where people can kind of go and travel and see the country. It's all the places are, they're all like within a stone's throw of Doha. Like, you know, it's uh, just stadiums that are just being built for the sake of this tournament. It's soulless and grim and horrible. It's a place that people don't really want to go. Plus, you know, all the teams will be all on top of each other. And it's in December. I think like the turnaround from the last Premier League game to the first game of the World Cup. I actually don't know it offhand, but it's insane. It's something, it's lower, like, if you think it's too short, it's shorter than that. I think it's that. nine days or something. Exactly. Like that, it's yeah. like, it's, it's a week and a half max. And, like, we've, we're used to warm-up games and camps and Saipan ruining our World Cup. Maybe that was good. Maybe it's a good thing not to have that, actually. But, you know, like, that's what the World Cup is. The World Cup is building up to it for a month with its own pre-season because it's the most important thing you're ever mm, going to play yes, in. Yes, yes. Whereas this is like, oh, Jesus, we've just lost to Arsenal. I'm sickened for a week and then I have to go. It's like, it's just an international break for a month. Yeah. You know? Um, we've, we, we just had four games there in the Nations League. Is more than most teams are going to play in this and then they'll be back mm. playing. It'll be like the African Cup of Nations. Sandwiched you know? in. It will. An inconvenience for and, club managers. And I think that's a real blow to our romantic notions of what the World Cup is and what it's supposed to be like and, and, and we live our season. lives by four life. We have our memories go in these four-year cycles of who was the player, who was the... And maybe that'll all come and we'll still enjoy it and we'll watch all the games and... Yeah. But it'll be very different. Yeah. Fellas, we're out of time. Michael McCarthy, Arthur O'Dea.